bringing the Bible reading. Uh, today's passage is John 17, 20 to 26. And I'll be reading from the Church Bible, and you can find that passage on 900, page 930. So, John 17, 20 to 26. My prayer is not for them alone. I also pray for those who believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me, and I am with you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them, and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them, and that I myself may be in them. Uh, we just sung, uh, my song of praise will always be the Father's love for me. Uh, as we look at this today, hopefully we get to see, uh, in an even deeper, richer way than maybe we've seen before, exactly what we're affirming when we say lines like that. Uh, and so, oh, yep, yeah, good. Uh, let me pray uh, for us again, and uh, we'll get started in John 17. Leave your Bibles open, we'll listen to them as we go. Uh, Father, you are uh, a God of deep love. Uh, the, re- the fact that we even use the language of Father when we get to talk about the God of the universe is, is nothing short of a marvel. And so I pray uh, that we, uh, your children here today, uh, would hear what you have to say to us. Uh, some of the things we think through today would be unbelievable if you hadn't shown us them in your word. Uh, and so please uh, speak by your spirit. Help us to hear, help us to understand, help us to believe, and therefore to delight in what we hear. And so please guide us as your children, we pray. Amen. Uh, It's not to be expected that we should love God supremely unless we find him more delightful than all other things. So said the great hymn writer Isaac Watts. Now is he right? Is it possible to love God, truly love God, for anything, if we don't find him more desirable than anything else? Everything else uh, comparatively bland and dissatisfied. Or does Watts know something about God that we don't? We assume we know much about who God is and what he's like. Um, And as Christians, uh, that means we kind of approach the Trinity uh, as some great unknowable mystery. Uh, We find the Trinity hard and uh, difficult to grasp. If you talk to our church before we did this series, they would say, Trinity is just a mystery you can't understand, just believe it and kind of move on. 
That's, that's, that's our general attitude when we deal with the Trinity. And we struggle with it because we try to stuff Father and, and Son and, and Spirit into the ways that we've always thought about God. We're happy to accept it as fact, but we remain unmoved by it. We, end up, we don't end up thinking about our triune God rightly, and thus our enjoyment and our, and our worship of Him is limited. We're happy to think about the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We appreciate separately. Uh, and even as we did the preaching series when we originally planted at Kingston, we planted to teach Trinity, which is kind of heavy doctrine, and then Father, Son and Spirit. And it was only as we were preparing the series we realised that that still isolates the three persons of God and we think about them uniquely and so we blew the series up and hence titles like Trinity in Worship and Trinity in Prayer, Trinity in Mission that we end up doing. We're happy to accept Trinity as this fact and we're happy to appreciate the Father, the Son and the Spirit but we think about them kind of separately. We thank the Father for his love and his grace. We thank the Son for dying for us for our redemption. We're thankful to the Holy Spirit for his ongoing work in our lives. We find the gospel beautiful. But it doesn't mean we find the God of the gospel compellingly beautiful. Trinity is not this awkward add-on to God. Some optional extra that we kind of embarrass by and don't really want to be there. The triune nature of God is a thing that sets God apart from all the other ideas about God that we might find out there in the different world religions. Our God is beautiful, he's desirable, and he's life-giving precisely because he is Father, Son and Spirit. Only then can he truly be loved. Only then... Uh, will he share his life and his joy? Trinity makes salvation sweeter. Could it be that this Trinity that we've kind of dismissed as uh, unpalatable, could that be the thing that actually makes God desirable? The thing that brings us to love God supremely? that awakens our world. And so today we eavesdrop on a conversation of God. In John 17, it's a great place to think through the Trinity because they're speaking to one another about their mutual love. And believers, as we find ourselves, we're not kind of on the outside chattering away in the cold, looking longingly in at the warmth of the love of God. We find ourselves in Christ the Son. Filled with the Spirit and adopted by the Father. It's my prayer that your view of God is positively shaken this morning. Our big idea is that comprehending the triune God, the triune God leads to adoration and worship. That should be up on the slide again. If you don't find God compellingly beautiful, if all other things don't seem, bland, don't, don't seem bland in comparison, well then I invite you to listen into this conversation of God with a sense of anticipation. 
Because the triune God is more beautiful than you can imagine. So that brings us to our first thing to observe today. And that's a, a clear starting point for thinking about our God. And that is the Father who loves. Now whether you're playing around with Lego or whether you're uh, renovating a building, the foundation matters. What you do with the foundation sets kind of what you do with everything else around you. So let me ask you, when you think about God, what is the first block that you put down? What is the starting point for which you base the rest of them around you? Now our instinct is generally to start with God as the creator, the God who made everything around us that we can see. Or you might go with a God who's a divine lawgiver or king or judge, something like that. Well, Jesus is the one who reveals God to us. And who does he reveal God to be? Again and again and again, Jesus reveals God to be fundamentally Father. Have a look at verse 24. Father, I want those you have given me to be, to be with me where I am and to see my glory. The glory you have given me because you love me before the creation of the world. If the first block that you put down is the creator, it becomes the reference point for the rest. We are creatures made according to the purpose of, of the creator. And we have this obligation to fulfil that purpose, to meet his expectations. There is distance from that creator. And you might be thinking, Hang on, that, that, that's all true. And you're not wrong. But it's not where Jesus starts. And it's not all that compelling. We don't find that God supremely beautiful. It's not where Jesus reveals God, whom Jesus reveals God to be. The same goes for the lawgiver and king. If that is the first block that you put down, we exist to obey. Uh, the relationship is defined by the quality of the obedience. If you screw up, you face judgment. If you do right, well, there's actually not a lot of positive benefits. What kind of relationship can you have with a judge? God is distant. Superior, unknowable. You can obey a lawgiver or a judge. They can do you favours. But you can't really know them or love them. That starting block doesn't make God compelling or beautiful either. The God that Jesus reveals is different. He is Father is the first block to put down. Father is not, uh, and this is obvious when you say, Father is not a singular or isolated term. To be a father, there must be another. A father begets. 
A father gives life. A father, unless he's deficient, loves. Before there was creation, when there was nothing else, God was a father, perfectly loving his son for all eternity through the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. He has always been loved. Now we need to consider, what if God wasn't triune? If he was just a, a singular being like the Jehovah's Witnesses or Islam imagined him to be? What did he do for all eternity before creation? What was he thinking about? Where did his daydreams go? There's only himself. There's no one to talk to. There's no one to relate with. Always alone. All he could ever think about is himself. Or worse, the things he lacked. The things he needs to be complete. Having spent all eternity alone, it is inevitable that the single person God is a self-centered being. And it's hard to see why that God would ever create anything. Having only ever considered himself, anything that is a creation would have to be for his own benefit. To cure the, the quiet loneliness. To have creatures to serve his needs. To have something to love. If you look at these ideas about God, all of them are significantly distant from their creation. A singular being God can rule. He can command allegiance. He can give stuff like heaven. They never offer fellowship. They haven't experienced it to know it or to share it. Father, Son and Spirit are not these three gods in a clique. They get their identity from one another and their existence from one another. A father cannot be the father without the son, whom he loves by the Spirit. A father cannot exist independently. They are who they are together, always together. They're not to be confused. They can't be divided. But here's the thing. The Trinity is not a mathematical equation. It is a relational reality. I think that's been the biggest thing for our church to comprehend over the last term, looking at this stuff. God is a relational God. Love is not an add-on to the triune God, but a central reality of who He is. Before God was a creator, before God was a lawgiver, He was a Father loving His Son through the Spirit for all eternity. He was love. God is love. 
And that reality cannot be true of a single person God. Love can only ever be an addition that comes after creation and is actually dependent on it to express it. It is not enough to know God as the creator and God as the judge. You must know him as father to know him well. Troy in love is not uh, an isolated self-centeredness. Always and continually their love has been uh, overflowing and self-giving. They didn't selfishly hoard that to themselves for all eternity, but it naturally flowed out into life-giving generosity. Love is the motivating force for the Father to create the world through His Son by His Spirit. Creation itself is a gift of life. Is it surprising then that love is so deeply written into our human imagination and identity? Our world uh, acts like uh, love, uh, compassion, relationships are the greatest things. If you were to ask people what should be, not what, what is, but what should be the purpose and meaning of life, I'll say something like uh, family, relationships, uh, uh, caring for others. Where does that instinct come from? An atheist suggests that we are the product of uh, random chance. That gives no rational reason why compassion, uh, relationships and self-giving love should exist. Those with a single person God suggest we are the product of a supreme impersonal will. Why would that God create us so that relationships are the most important thing? He hasn't known them to value. Polytheists uh, says that, say that we're the product of chaotic forces between the gods who are, quite honestly, at war most of the time. And that's not fertile grounds for compassion and personal relationships either. Love in all of these instances is a mirage. Only the Christian with a triune God has the logical foundation for the grand ideals of love, compassion and fellowship that we have. Love is the greatest thing because the triune God is love. Father, Son and Spirit giving and receiving love and fellowship before the creation of the world. It's the reason love is wired into our existence. So that's the first uh, Father's son. Second thing to observe is an incredible salvation. We are bound up into an incomprehensible love. Let me ask you an honest question. What is it that you really want from God? What do you want God to do for you? Because the answer to that question reveals a lot about who you think God is. Our, our, our common answer is that we want God to give us uh, stuff. That stuff might be forgiveness. It might be a good life now. It might be heaven in the future. We're not really interested in God himself. 
We end up grateful to God for his things. But we don't find God attractive. Our desire is not for him. Have a look again at Trinitarian God. Have a look at verse 25. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I will continue to make you known to them. I have made you known to them and continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. So repeats the idea that we see in verse 23. Jesus makes the Father known so that the love the Father has for the Son might be experienced by us. Extended to you. The single person God is at best a friendly but distant power. If you do what he wants, if you fulfil his requirements, he might be happy with you. You might even get to live under his rule and his protection, but at an infinite distance. He might offer you forgiveness, but never closeness. He might even reward you with eternity. But he won't spend it with you. There's no such thing as quality time. All religions with a single person God do not imagine closeness. Either now or in eternity. Salvation is sweeter with a triune God. What did the cross and resurrection of Jesus achieve? You are more than just forgiven. More than acceptable slaves. More than righteous. The door is open to the family home. And we are welcomed in as adopted sons and daughters. All the rights and privileges of a firstborn son. Consider Jesus' words about the role of the Spirit that come in the previous chapter. Uh, verse 14. Uh, he, he which is the Holy Spirit will glorify me, Jesus, because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. The Son's existence and identity comes from being loved by the Father. It is who he is. The Father who audibly said, This is my beloved Son, whom I love, in whom I am well pleased. As we are united to Christ by the Spirit, the Creator of the universe comes to treat me as His beloved, capital S Son, that we are united to. Ponder that. By the Spirit we cry out, Abba, Father. That rich, intimate, relational language that Jesus uses when he speaks to God 
is appropriate for our relationship with the Father. In the opening words of John's Gospel, we read that the Word was with God in the beginning. The old language says that the Word was in the bosom of the Father. The delicate skin on the cheek gently nuzzled into the warmth of the Father's bosom. His heartbeat felt in the ear. Close. Secure. Beloved. The fellowship of the Holy Spirit binding the two of them together. Having always known the preciousness of that tender, intimate love, it's extended out and made known to you. How glorious does that make Jesus look? With a single person God, there is only room for one. The faithful might try to approach God through spiritual disciplines or being morally right. But they will always be on the outside looking in. Not so with a father who gives life. Those who belong to the triune God are in Christ the Son. They are filled with the Spirit and adopted by the Father. And there are many rooms in the Father's house. The Son's identity, His primary identity, is to be loved by the Father. He shows us how to relate to God. We are to cherish and enjoy His love. If you know Him rightly, you want Him. Nothing else He could give you, none of His stuff could compare to having Him. It is the Trinity that makes sense of Jesus' earlier words in the chapter in verse 3. Now this is eternal life, he says, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Eternal life is about knowing God, the one whose love we were created to know and experience. The story of the Bible still does end in paradise. But unlike other faiths, we don't go there alone. God is present amongst his people. We will forever enjoy his love. And then finally, I want to invite you to reflect on the Trinity as a God to desire and worship. Now, Trinity, it's definitely not a human creation. Like, we make things up that we can reduce down and, and, and are simple that we can grasp. The Trinity is complex. But as we look at it today, is it not also inviting and beautiful? Something to ponder more and to delight in, not to dismiss as irrelevant. Comprehending the triune God leads to delight, adoration and worship. So don't settle for the old categories of God that you have. Become captivated by a God who is Trinity, 
ponder him. Seek to enjoy him. Embrace being loved by him. Worship him as Trinity. As Trinity, uh, the Creator God is far more worthy of worship than what he was before. Not only now do we gaze in breathless wonder as we see something uh, impressive in creation. No longer do we just marvel at the intricacies of the interconnectedness of what he's made or stare with wonder at the uh, precise design of a newborn baby. The beauty of God is not just in creation, but the reason there was creation. A God who is Father, Son and Spirit, so overflowing with love and life that it naturally flowed out into this beautiful world. To the creation of you. That you would share his unfathomable love. As Trinity, the God who is judge and lawgiver is more worthy of worship than he was before. No longer do you hear that idea in cringily. You don't have a heavenly judge waiting to cross you off his niceness. You don't have this impersonal being trying to rob you of your life and of your joy. The lawgiver and judge is first and foremost a father. Any rules or expectations he gives, he gives for the same reason a loving father gives them. For the flourishing of their children. Law giving is not not about overbearing servitude. It's an act of love through which the beloved can grow and thrive. A loving father doesn't ignore their kids' mistakes and flaws but corrects them and and trains them for their good. They'll allow hardship for the greater good of learning. The triune God disciplines us as his beloved children in order that a harvest of peace and righteousness would come for those who are willing to be trained by. That's what the Hillite of Hebrews says. Get this. God is shaping us into the best thing the image of his son. We become like Jesus. And don't make the mistake of limiting that purely to behaviour, as if what we're becoming like is simply just someone nicer. Trinity means God is a deeply relational God. In the image of his son, we come to know and experience the depths of what it means to be loved by God in the same way that Jesus is loved by God as the beloved Son forever. It's not to be expected that we would love God supremely unless we find him to be more desirable than all other things. The triune God is a God that you can love supremely. We don't choose what we love. 
We love what is desirable to us. In limiting our thinking about the Trinity, we have robbed ourselves of the beauty and desirability of God. We've limited our joy. We have limited our worship. We've limited our life. There is no God like our God who is Father, Son and Spirit. When we see him that way, everything else grows dim. Let us enjoy him and therefore love him forever. Let me pray for you guys. Father, it's a wonderful privilege to use the language of Father as we speak to you. You are an incredible being. You are truly love, having always been love. And yet startlingly and surprisingly, you invite us into that love to know it and experience it. Father, so often we've treated things about you as theory. Things about you, uh, for, for, for law-giving reasons or for distance reasons or try and impress you reasons. We've missed the relational language that you use about us all the time. This privilege you give us to speak to you in the same intimate language that Jesus does. Father, I pray that you would take each and every person on this room on a journey to know you, to have eternal life in knowing you as Father, as Son, as Spirit. Father, please guide them in these things. Please readjust mistaken assumptions that have made them distant from you. Draw them into your beauty. Help us to find you as desirable, that we would love you supremely for our joy and our good, as well as your glory. Amen. We are not.